accreditation is a status that's earned, not given. Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are AARP Foundation, All Right, American Kidney Fund. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. On our show, we've had a number of episodes that have dealt with the subject of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. And we've talked about these in the context of how we can achieve more equitable and diverse and inclusive workplaces, particularly in the nonprofit sector. I've offered my perspective on this in previous podcast episodes and other speeches basically saying that in order to do this well, we have to be open to ideas and really addressing the problem by looking at our systems, processes, cultural mores, values, etc., and asking ourselves, do these actually hold anyone back from achieving their best work? And also recognizing, too, that institutions are places where people of diverse backgrounds have to come and we all have to adhere to certain rules so that we can't just show up any way we want to because the organization couldn't function that way. So there's a balance that has to be struck in order to achieve diversity, equity, inclusion and access and giving everyone a chance to succeed and giving the organization the ability to accomplish its goals. Ultimately, when that work is done, an organization can look up and say, this is who we are. And it may not be satisfying to everyone, but at least we know when an organization stands up and says, this is who we are, we know who they are and we can make decisions about how we want to engage that particular organization. Today, I want to go a little step further. I have with me today a person who actually does DEIA work as a business. And I want to talk with her about her work, how she came to it, and what she's seeing in the environment today that would actually give us hope that perhaps we're moving in the direction that I've talked about in my podcast before. 
or whether or not we have even more work to do today than we did a couple of years ago when many organizations embarked on their DEIA journeys. With me today is Alpana Chibber Suniga, and she is with Molina Consulting, and her partner, Jesse Molina, and she got involved in this work a couple of years ago, and I want to hear her story about where that came from, how they're doing it, and what we can be hopeful about in this podcast. Alpana, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you so much, Art. This is an honor and such a privilege to be on this platform and to have this opportunity to speak with you. And so I'm just really excited to have an open and frank conversation about what DIA work looks like um, and how practical it is and that it doesn't have to be the sort of pie in the sky. It's absolutely doable. And so I'm really excited to share that with, with you today. Well, that's so great to hear, Alpana. First, I want to find out from you how you go from being a teacher to now a consultancy focused on helping us think through our DEIA journeys. Now, you started out as a teacher, I'm correct, in in New York and Baltimore, teaching history and some other things. Tell me about your background. Absolutely. Um, So I have spent over 10 years in the educational sector. I will always call myself an educator um, because that is my passion. That is in my blood. My grandmother was an educator. All of my aunts are educators. And so um, that is very much in my blood. But I'm a former teacher and administrator. So I spent six years teaching history and, you know, sort of a little bit of everything regarding history. And I was a dorm parent and I I worked at at a boarding school. And then I left that to pursue the life of an administrator. I was a Dean of Students at a school in Baltimore for four years. And it's just so interesting the way the universe works is my second year into being the Dean, the pandemic hit. And you know, I had to sort of rethink uh, along with a really great group of folks who I worked with, like, what does education look like now? right? Because we weren't receiving a ton of guidance from the Department of Education. And so it was a little bit of like, okay, you got to get creative. This is a really amazing opportunity to figure out what school is going to look like for these kids for the foreseeable future. And so um, in doing that, you know, I think we came up with some really amazing programs to help support students, not only academically, but also socially, emotionally, because we really saw that there was a lot of struggle happening there. But along with that, we had to also figure out how do we have these really real life conversations with students as the United States is going through this incredible racial reckoning with the murder of George Floyd and with the subsequent conversations around law enforcement and policing. And it was a really amazing opportunity for us to be able to create those spaces for students. And so I was in the system for another four years. And then my friend, Jesse, who had created Molina Consulting a few years before, sort of made me an offer that I couldn't refuse and asked me if I wanted to try my hand at visiting other institutions and doing DEI work with them. And I said, yes. And it's been an amazing ride since then. It's been pretty incredible. Well, it's so fascinating listening to you talk about this path, starting as an educator and now basically sampling 
something entirely new. Although, when I look at your background, you're from Kenya. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And you have a somewhat of a Kenyan Indian background in East Africa. And I just wonder if some of that helps open your aperture to an opportunity like this. Does coming from a different part of the world make you more open to considering an opportunity like this? I'm just curious because, you know, you don't find many teachers just saying, okay, I'm going to stop teaching and I'm going to take a job in something that I have to learn all over again to really be effective at. You have to somewhat be open to the possibility of doing it and find great meaning in it. Do you think there's anything in your past in where you were born, how you came to this country that makes that path logical and meaningful for you? Absolutely. Our, my brother, sister, and I are third generation Kenyan Indians. My father was born in East Africa. My grandmother was born in East Africa. Her father and uh, her mother were brought over by the British uh, during the building of the railroads in Kenya. And yeah, I mean, I think our story is very much the story of immigrants, right? You come to a country. So for us, you're coming to the United States. Uh, our, my knowledge, very frankly, of the U.S. was what I had seen on the TV. And so it was very like I, I kind of viewed the United States through a lens of Family Matters <laughs> and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Disney. It was very like very specific lens. And so being an immigrant to the United States, I think you don't have much of an option in terms of being like, well, I'm just going to ignore all these things that are going on around me that have to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I didn't have that language at that time. But there were things that would be said to myself or my siblings or my parents, you know, because we, we immigrated to a very small town on the Mason-Dixon border. We were the only family of color on our entire street. And people say things and people do things. And you know, deep down in your core, that doesn't quite feel right, what was just said to me, right? Why are folks laughing? Why are other students laughing with what was just said? And so I feel that being an immigrant to the United States allowed me to really tap very deeply into empathy, right? I don't have a, I mean, I don't have a choice, right? I can sit there and be like, well, I'm going to move past this and I'm going to do what I need to do and that'll be it. But I really feel that being an immigrant really put me in this position where I was like, wow, I feel really bad for myself, but also like, I really feel bad for others that this happens to, right? Whether it's racism or whether it was sexism or, or what have you. And so that I feel was the true reason and what really led me into education and into teaching, because I think my teachers, the ones that looked out for me as a 12 year old Kenyan Indian student who was just trying to figure out what it means to be American, my teachers were the ones that created a sense of safety and showed me love and showed me care and didn't allow for things to be said to me and didn't allow for spaces to be unsafe. They made sure that I was happy. And through that, I think a lot of students viewed that behavior. And in turn, it was sort of like modeling, right? The teachers modeled, this is how we treat others. And that's what a lot of students ended up doing too. And, and that's how I made friends. But I remember thinking very distinctly in college, 
that I wanted to do that too. That I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I was on this path to becoming a doctor. I was pre-med and I felt like teaching was this calling that I needed to answer primarily because I realized how much teaching had helped me and how much my teachers had helped me and how much they had essentially saved me when I was in middle school and high school and that I wanted the opportunity to be able to do the same for others. You hear that story a lot. I hear that story, particularly among people of color yeah. who, who, when they want to start a career, their first orientation is I want to teach. Because for many of us, the authority figures that we know are teachers, religious leaders. We don't often get to experience a broad spectrum of professions and get to know leaders who impact our lives in a way that they can for people who are in the majority. And so we tend to want to lean into the teaching aspect, at least to get started, because that's the pe- those are the people who most impacted us as we were coming up and gave us the opportunities, as you say, to have the kind of lives that we live today. They were our saviors in many cases, thank goodness. And so what you're saying is, is certainly not unusual. And yet I do want to say that I hope that more people who are doing things other than teaching, who are people of color, will be available and visible so that young people can have more of a sense of what's possible from a career standpoint. And I hope that we we see more of that over time so that uh, young people can can experience and seek out careers and professions that cover this spectrum. I think we're starting to see more of that, but I hope we will. When I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I had to get a job. <laughs> and so <laughs> I looked at a newspaper and what I saw back then was all the jobs were in accounting. I didn't know what an accountant was, but I said, that's what I'm going to be because I know I can get a job. But there were very few accountants in my city. There were only 10 black CPAs in Philadelphia in 1980 when I graduated. And so I had no way of really connecting with anyone back then. But today, I think kids have a little bit more opportunities if we can all make ourselves a bit more available. Anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here. But to get back to your story, you're now shifting. You've now shifted from something that you saw as a way of giving back to another way of giving back and having a career. And I want to make it very clear now, Alpina's work is for profit. She's out here to make money. She's not simply out here to help. I want you to make that very clear. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I wish more people of color would go into business. And we see more people of color actually going into business, and that's great. But to have an orientation to also serving while you're doing your business is different. It's different. To believe that you have a responsibility while you make money to contribute something back to society through your business is different. 
And just let me ask you that question. As you go about your work, how do you make decisions? You know, how do you make decisions about what to do, what clients to take on? And does that decision-making process uh, rest to some extent on what you're able to contribute back? That's a great question, Art. So I have primarily worked with educational institutions. So a lot of schools that are looking for and asking for support in training faculty, in training their boards, in working with parents, in supporting students. Jessie has worked with lots of others, sort of like she's worked with hospitals. She's worked with law firms. She's had conversations with law enforcement, right? About like, what does is, what is implicit bias look like there? All of those places where where there are systemic issues, right? So although we may have people of color working in all of these areas, there are still real systemic issues, at, which are the root cause of a lot of problems within all of these different areas. And so when I'm about to work with a client, really, it's just, I always have a pretty significant meeting with them. Um, and I get to know who they are. I get to know the culture of the school very specifically. I get to know just what it is that they're looking for. And then I create a plan that's very specific to them. What happened was that when sort of like DEI work was becoming monetized, right? So when folks are starting create, to create companies, there were a lot of companies doing DEI work, but that were white owned. So there are a lot of white folks that were doing the DEI work, but talking as white people about what does it mean to be anti-racist, so on and so forth. So I think a lot of folks of color were like, wait a second, we're living this, they're living this life every single day, but I'm talking about this for free, right? And so it's just like, no, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to see like, I, this is my piece of the pie too then, right? If I'm going to talk about my pain as a person of color, if I'm going to do the labor of talking about anti-racism, then I, I need to get paid for that. And so we certainly absolutely work with every institution, every company to, to meet their needs in terms of where they are, even money-wise, because, and, and what Jesse and I say all the time, is at the end of the day, it is more important to us to do the work, right? Like it is way more. I I would love for whenever I have children and whenever they have children, for them to be able to go to school or go to these different spaces and have a different experience than what I've had, what their dad has had. And so really, I always think about DEI work as work of the heart, right? I don't think I ever come back home feeling like elated or like that was so like, I'm always excited and happy, but I'm exhausted too, right? Because you as a person of color are standing there in front of a group of 100, 200, 300 people and talking to them about why it matters to be anti-racist, why it matters to speak up if you have privilege, why, I mean, you know, and that takes a lot out of you because we know why it's important, right? We're, we're born with the skin. We know why it's important. And so it is work of the heart. And I believe that if I didn't believe in this and if I didn't love it. And I've, if I wasn't passionate about it, I just wouldn't do it. But I just know that I've, I've seen the benefits of it. I've seen lives change. Students, kids, if kids are able to talk about racism, if they're able to talk about what it means to be anti-racist in a really age-appropriate way, they're changed. They will be such, the, the way that they will grow and the kinds of adults that they will be, how much less work will have to be done then? As I think about my my experiences, my work experiences, what have you, I think about 
how I was as a teacher and then how I was as a dean. And it was always, my work was always through a DI lens, right? So if we're going to talk about oppression, then we're going to talk about all sorts of oppression, right? If I'm going to be the dean, then we're going to talk about what it means to be a dean through a DI lens, right? And it's not just going to be about don't run in the hallways or don't do this or don't do that. It's going to be about how can I hope that after three years in middle school, you are going to be the best possible human? you can be. This is sort of the passion we try to share with schools as best as we can and do our work and go home then. <laughs> and now it's time for our giving tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. So if you're thinking of making a donation of a car to charity, there are several things that you should consider. First up is, have you taken the time to check out the charity to see if it meets BBB charity standards? Go to give.org to find out more about them. If there isn't a report available, have you taken the time to check out their website to see what they do if this is the type of organization that you want to support? The other thing I would say is see how the charity financially benefits from the transaction of this car donation. Don't assume the car is going to be given to poor people or, or used directly by the charity. The car is going to be sold at auction, and the charity gets part of that resale of the car. And you won't know how much is going unless they tell you up front or unless you ask. There are also other issues to consider about the deductibility of your gift. There's various information available on the IRS website, and you have to look up IRS Form 8283 which is going to require you to fill out some information about in-kind donations above a certain value that you're going to be deducting. And, and that's also important to follow the IRS rules. And I'd also say it's important to have the title of the car transfer to the organization before it leaves your property. Because even though they may be towing the car away, if something happens to the car, it's parked illegally during storage or someone takes it out for a drive and it gets in an accident and it hasn't been resold yet, the car is still your name and you may be liable for those things. So you don't want that to happen, that responsibility. And if they're unwilling to title change the time that they you make the gift, you may want to consider it giving to a charity that is willing to make that transfer. So there are things to think about before you make this donation to be careful and to ensure donation is going to be used in the best possible way. I am really interested in knowing how you believe your work can help us bridge differences. And let me, let me just give you a little context. So in almost every enterprise, I would assume you're going to find people all along the spectrum of, let's say, racist to anti-racist, right? They're going to be people who are all across this spectrum. Is there anything you can tell us about your work that would help bring these folk together at least enough to where they could talk to each other and get to know each other and understand each other's perspectives? Because I don't think we can really move forward until we can do that. Now, I could be wrong. You may have a different sense of that. And if, if you do, please let me know. But I worry that in America, what happens is we have years in which we go along with the status quo, which is not generally helpful for racial minorities or minorities in general. 
And then there's an event or a series of events like George Floyd and the racial reckoning. And what happens is our society kicks into wanting to create a more fair environment. And that goes on for a period. And then the people who are pro-racism begin to <laughs> fight back or and the pendulum slowly begins to shift. What happens is a lot of the conversations that we're having around this are deemed unfair to the incumbent culture that we have. And that incumbent culture fights back and the pendulum shifts and our progress is halted. And I seem to feel that until we can get those folk to understand that it's not the end of the world for them if other people have opportunities, that they can still have opportunities too, that we can approach this from a perspective of abundance as opposed to scarcity, that a rising tide lifts all boats. If more people have the ability to succeed, it's going to help them too. It's going to help our country. It's going to create more opportunity then we're going to be constantly in this tug of war where one year we're supportive of these efforts and the next year we're not supportive. We're constantly in this tug. It seems to me if we can get young people especially talking to each other and breaking through these barriers that we have around race and difference that we might succeed. Is your work, are you seeing any, giving me any hope that your work or similar work can actually do that. Art, what you described right now is so on point of where DEI work is right now. I would say specifically in the United States. I have a group of diversity practitioners that I meet with once a week. And the conversation consistently every week is, how do we do this work with the pushback that we're seeing, right? You are spot on, again, with 2020, 2021. We need to be anti-racist. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about our policing. We need to talk about all these different things that are happening in the United States. And then in 2022, less. And now in 2023, institutions just making a choice to say diversity isn't a good word. It's not a word. Let's use a word like community, which is totally fine. Community is a great word. We use diversity purposefully. It's not a bad word, right? We have diversity in our nature. <laughs> we have diversity in movies. We have diversity in music. I mean, what you're saying is absolutely what we're seeing in, in sort of folks who are doing this DEI trainings and facilitations every day. And as our bread and butter, we're absolutely seeing a pushback. I would say sometimes from parents, sometimes from students, sometimes from institutions as well, who feel like, okay, we need to focus on something else right now. And so... I also remind myself that I'm fighting the good fight and I'm going to go down fighting the good fight, right? Because we're doing this for a reason, because we already know in our crystal ball, we've seen our crystal ball. We know that the future is brighter and better when we are able to talk about difference in a healthy, productive way, when we're able to disagree with each other in a healthy, productive way. I remember once when I was, I was facilitating a workshop and somebody had asked me, Alpana, how do you create a space where everyone's opinions are valued and everyone's contributions are, are equal and important? And, and what I said was, I said, I'm really happy to have conversations with folks who see life 
differently than I do, as long as it's not at the expense of dehumanizing me. Right. I am totally okay to have a conversation with you about race in the United States and uh, systemic racism and white supremacy and all of those things and have you disagree with me. But the minute it starts dehumanizing me and taking away my life experiences is where you got to stop them at some point. Right. But I think that there have been plenty of institutions and plenty of schools who have said we started this work. We're going to continue doing this work because we know that our faculty are better, our students are better, our parents are better, and our community is better when we create really purposeful, meaningful spaces to have these really tough conversations and bring professionals, right? That's something that I always say. If it feels overwhelming as an institution to have this conversation, bring a professional. We're here for that reason. We're here to create those spaces and really meaningful workshops and what what have you so that we can have that and we can have sort of that goal achieved of what you're looking for, which is sort of like a never ending thing. I think right now it has seemed really bleak with the pushback, but I always have hope. I always have hope. Yeah. Well, keep the hope alive for sure. I want to ask you about some of the work you do around restorative justice. Yeah. I'm very interested in that theme. A few podcasts ago, I had a conversation with a couple of women on the theme of reparations. Yes. (laughs) And it wasn't, it was, it was very interesting because, you know, reparations can be a very incendiary word among some folk, even among people of color. It's like, uh oh, why do you want to use that? Because that's just going to trigger a whole lot of angst and bad feelings and, they're super liberal in their concepts and we're not necessarily there. And how does it even work? Because the mindset is you need to take some money and give it to people who contributed so much, whose ancestors contributed so much and were never compensated. Right. But it actually goes deeper than that. It goes to how do we find a way to create a society where all people have the opportunities to succeed and that our systems and processes and cultural mores are not holding one group back just because they can. (laughs) And so we figured that out. And the reparations process is about creating these opportunities, some of which will create the need for financial resources in order to build and construct and to maintain others, which may not. So it's a lot broader, but it's a lot broader than simply saying, well, let's write checks to people because that, frankly, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to get a check from somebody, but I don't know how much that would change our society from the standpoint of race. So I'm just curious if your restorative justice work does much On that, are we talking about something different? When I think about the work I have done around, I would say I would maybe even go with an umbrella term and just call it restorative processes. Restorative justice was a movement that came out in the 1970s to really 
talk about the inequities in our law enforcement and and sort of like in our incarceration and you know carceral system. When I think about restorative processes, especially when it comes to the institutions that I'm you know I've been consulting with or the schools that I've worked at, what that has really looked like is having really frank conversations around how schools, whether they are public institutions or independent institutions, mimic the world that we see outside of schools. So I have worked primarily at independent schools. It's just the way my career sort of took its its shape and its path. And it was wild because it was almost like you could see like a like a almost like a I don't know, like a blueprint or or whatever for what a lot of kids, specifically boys, specifically black and brown boys, would see outside of those schools, right? So in the schools, you know, I have to say that my partner in the middle school, the principal and I kept very clear data, but we saw the pattern of the kids who were always in the offices were the same kids that were called and they happened to be black and brown young boys, very often also black girls. We were able to see patterns of the ways that students were being talked about, whether it was them talking about each other, adults talking about them with very racially loaded language, right? I'll give you a, for instance, that every week we would have a grade level meeting, and this has happened throughout my entire teaching career. We would have a grade level meeting. And if we, uh, we have two students, right? So one white girl and one black girl, and they are exhibiting the same stuff in class, right? They are not really raising their hand and they're talking. The white student was consistently, and this is part of the restorative conversation, right? The white girl would consistently be viewed as and labeled as assertive, really excited to learn, an active participant, right? And we have it in the report cards, right? And what do you think the young black girl was labeled as? Disruptive. Right? Disruptive. Spot on. Disruptive, right? And now we're talking about sixth grade. What happens now to those children in seventh grade and eighth grade? And now they're going on until high school. What happens to them in high school when those conversations, whatever teachers are seeing in spaces, administrators are seeing in spaces, now follows them onto the report cards. And then the report cards or, or is shared with the high school and then shared with colleges, right? When we are able to talk frankly about restorative processes, this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about how do we view children children, 10 and 11, 12, 13 years old. I'll say specifically because I worked in a middle school. How do we view them? How do we label them? How do we think about them? And then what kinds of supports do we create or not create for them, right? In keeping data about who were in our offices, who were being suspended, who were perhaps being expelled, we had to come to some kind of reckoning when we looked at that data and say, wow, we are really fitting every other pattern in probably every other school in this country, right? Where it is the same kids that are always in the office and it is the same kids. It's like copy paste, right? When we implemented restorative processes, so that was having really frank, very open trainings with faculty and frankly, also really open trainings with students as well right? Having community circles during certain times of the day or having community circles as a response instead of saying, okay, you need to go home now. 
or you know you're suspended or we're going to call your parents but actually recognizing and reminding the child first of all you're a child it's okay mistakes happen but we're going to come together and we're going to have a frank conversation about what just happened we were able to see that not only were we i don't want to say fixing because you can't fix but we were addressing a really real problem of systemic racism and we were also able to change the way we did discipline in the middle school and we were able to change the way i don't know students are talked about and the way faculty are talked about even right because we know it's not just with the students we know the one black faculty member the one asian faculty member the one latino faculty member is going to be talked in a specific way right there are racially loaded words that are going to be used about them that again is also going to be used about students and so when we think about restorative processes the one thing that i have said to every institution i've been to is this isn't an add on right it's not something that you can check off your list this is a institutional and a cultural change you have to be willing to say we have systemic inequities and we want to address them and here's how we're going to address them yeah well i think your work around dealing with things like bias and microaggressions probably leads to a lot of that work that can be so transformative for institutions like schools where there are children who don't even know what's happening to them. And yet they know something is not right. Right. They know there's a a lack of fairness going on and they're suffering from that. So kudos to your work for doing that. And I want to just close out the interview by asking you to give me your sense of the future if you have to project, right? If you have to project based on your work today and what you're seeing, where are we five years, 10 years from now as a result of what you're doing? Well, I will say that as adults, we tend to be 10 steps behind (laughs) students and children. So although parents, educators, administration, whatever it might be, very specifically for schools and then outside of schools, folks, adults might feel like we need to put a pause on talking about diversity or diversity is a bad word or what have you. Our students, our kids are having these conversations. They're having these conversations on social media. They're having conversations with each other and they need that guidance and they need that support. So I would really love to think that if we create those spaces, then all young folks today are going to keep keep taking that work forward. They're going to keep having really amazing conversations and making change around race and gender and the ways that we view class in the United States. I mean, I'm just sort of looking at our government and what Gen Zs are now doing for the government who are being voted in. And so I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I feel like there are many moments where there is fear, especially as we think about the election cycle that is coming up, right? But that's why we need to have these conversations. And that's why we need to create spaces for these conversations for adults and very, very importantly for young folks, because they need the words, they need the language, they need the ability to, they need spaces to be able to like work things out and think critically. And so I'm really hopeful. I'm really, really hopeful. And I think no matter how many times DEI work is pushed back on. I know that there are plenty of folks that are still doing that work, right? We do it in pockets. We do it quietly. We do it really loudly in the streets, but we're doing it. And I have a lot of hope. I think it's meaningful and I think it's beautiful work. And again, it's work of the heart. And and that's why I'm going to keep doing it until I can't do it anymore. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Alpana, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Art. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time and your wisdom on this really important topic, a topic that is, as I said, being challenged right now. And we have to keep the flame burning. We have to help people understand that it's not the end of the world. If if we're talking about things like privilege, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be privileged anymore. Just living in this country to some extent is, is a privilege when you compare it to other places on the globe. So we're not going to be unprivileged. What we're doing is creating ways for you to be even more privileged because we're all going to succeed. And I just appreciate so much that you took this risk to leave something that was very comfortable for you in the education space and branch out because you had a, in your heart to do something that could be even more powerful and meaningful to people in our society and to help our society heal on this issue of race. So just thank you for that. Now, we've come to the end of the show, and I just want to let everyone know that the Heart of Giving podcast is a weekly podcast. It comes out every Tuesday, but of course you can get it any day. All you have to do is go to any major podcast platform and look for The Heart of Giving podcast. And when you do, I hope you'll listen to some episodes. And more importantly, I hope you'll subscribe to the show so that you can get each new one when they come out. So if you want to support the podcast, and I hope you will, you can go to give.org, which is the website for the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, and you can make a donation. Any amount we will certainly appreciate and put to good use. So we'll see you back here next week for another episode. And I want to thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.